And so we might say this is an experience of the void. You're listening to the Digital Void Podcast, where we work to make sense of the borderlands of digital media, culture, politics, and memes. My name is Josh Chapdelaine, and my co-host is memeticist Dr. Jamie Cohen. Today, we're happy to present a special conversation about memes and fascism between Jamie and media theorist Raphael Zaki. This conversation was recorded in mid-September 2020. Make sure to subscribe to the Digital Void podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or your favorite podcast provider today. Additionally, subscribe to us on YouTube for access to our archived virtual salons and workshops. We're looking forward to hearing from you again in 2021. We'll be taking off next week to pause for the holiday, and we'll return on Monday, January 4th. In the meantime, enjoy this week's conversation. Do you think... Okay, this is the year 2020. So do you think each generation is actually using the same memes as every previous generation, but only in the iteration that makes sense to them? Hmm. That's a really interesting question. And I think there's a couple ways to look at it. You know, in a lot of ways, I think, you know, the connection between memes and the occult is the idea that the occult Mm. is hidden from view or hidden. And in the sense that what's what might be triggering these kinds of uh, particular adaptations, maybe even to particular stimuli, are we just seeing the same thing mm. in different iterations, let's say in the popular imagination of the next generation? So what, what we're looking at when we talk about, I guess, the occult under underpinnings of these let's say these memes, um, is really the subconscious or maybe even the sub-perceptual aspects of our engagement with these ideas and how they might reflect in all the generations. Because we're ultimately talking about a human response to language and symbol. Mm, Wow. Okay. So you went deep right off the bat. So is it, do you think we so that that basically states this weird premise that the hidden from view is the thing that behind our consciousness that we're just aware of but slightly out of reach. So we kind of interpret it through these like mimetic translations that kind of like allow us to deal with those types of things. Because if that's if that's the case, mm-hmm. then like basically everything old is new again in infinity. <laughs> right. It's almost like the um it might, it's the idea of the perennial philosophy, even, that you know, what you see across time and epoch and generation, I guess to use that term, um, you know, millennial or otherwise, is, is the human being or the human condition coming to terms with itself and its environment. I mean, if you, if you kind of take a step back and think and kind of take the – maybe take the memes I view, you know, this approach is really a media – ecology approach, which is really just thinking about media Mm. as environments. So what is the language space or even the collective psychic space that we're inhabiting and then ultimately reflecting on? And Okay. So then I, I, well, as you know, I definitely agree with that because I think media environments and media ecology environments, like places in which our screen interacts with our understanding of reality or even just not even just a screen, but media itself, that media can't really exist without somebody interpreting that type of content. So Hmm. 35,000 years of that is how we end up at this moment. But there's then this idea then that, 
basically then the concept takes, it's like, again, back to McLuhan-esque, it takes the form of the current moment then. Right. Is that like the thing is like, so we're just because, so in the infodemic or ultra information era of the present, the new forms of everything we're thinking about is just because of the chaos factory that is in, in the background at all times. And I mean, that's, I guess that's what Marshall McLuhan would talk about information overload, feeding, mm-hmm. feeding the imagination or, or even the imaginal perceptual sense, and then leading to, I, I guess, a sense of um, looking for coherence, right? Being lost in this chaos factory um, in a lot of ways means that the only way out um, is through pattern recognition, which is, a, I guess, a very mm-hmm. deep McLuhan approach to to thinking about these ideas. Right. So, but then that's always, so that's like just instinctual because par- pattern recognition is like a pareidolia. That's our fibrous, whatever part of our brain that recognizes humans from other humans. We kind of have to create meaning no matter what, otherwise we're just going to like die out in a field. Um, so it's, <laughs> it is really about like, how do we, and then, so I, okay, to build off that, I think it's important that we, McLuhan comes to this interpretation of memetics and meme magic and media messaging in the 60s like that really when it was like taking the turn from mad men to much more of a commodified space but we also have to like take into account that like if that is the perceptual understanding of everything around us then it really is is there an let me let me repropose this question then is there an end to it if it becomes commodified. So if McLuhan's speaking at the beginning of the commodified language, at the earliest days of neoliberalism, is when media wasn't just for information. Media originally was designed that we could pass on information past our death, that we could give it to a future generation that's not yet alive. So we could keep alive the idea of culture. But once you commodify it, you create more of a present because consumerism requires us to purchase now, not later. So what happens? So we're now in 2020 where our thoughts, affects, knowledge, like Nick Cernicek says, we're like, we've basically commodified our thoughts at this point. Mm. How does it even take a form of media if we're able to commodify even the distinct aspects? We've left the McLuhan medium and we've now entered the medium of the ephemeral. And it and it's kind of, I guess, like you're saying, it kind of runs through your, your fingers. Like, uh, you know, it's not something that you could really grasp, but in the moment, in the, I guess, you know, to borrow a term from from Rushkoff's Team Human, you know, in the kind of standing wave or the cultural standing wave of that moment, um, maybe we can see in those patterns, those those particular reflections. I mean, commodifying thought, you know, you're talking about the underlying substrate of, uh, you know, persuasive architectures, behavioral design. And ultimately, I think one way of adapting to these shocks um, is ultimately to repress the engagement with that with that pain or with the trauma of manipulation. I mean, there's an interesting an, an interesting uh, psychologist, I guess to give him a term, named Wilhelm Reich. He, he wrote a he wrote an interesting book back in the early 30s called the the Mass Psychology of Fascism, where he, he kind of you know lays oh. out the 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 real kind of energetic or maybe even let's say the psychical components of this of this kind of reinforcing authoritarianism, and. I, th- I think when we're thinking about the, I guess, underlying unconscious aspects of what's really driving, what's, what's being recognized or expressed in that moment, um, it might be helpful to, to look at what's being, well, really what's being suppressed in that moment. And, and rather than, let's say, armoring, which is a, ter- you know, a term borrowed by, uh, a term borrowed from Reikian therapy, um, instead of armoring and attacking, attacking mm-hmm. those memes, um, you know, I think a more holistic approach and maybe even a more 
ecological approach is how do we how do we heal that armor and how do we heal the distortions that that are necessarily being reflected in that repression um i think in that way you've got humans in every generation in all times dealing with the present moment um in a lot of ways it feels like life or death in in uh, these in these particular uh persuasive architectures unfortunately oh man i cannot believe you brought that up considering that's exactly what I've been thinking about literally what day is today, the 14th. Yesterday, Brian Hughes posted something that said, Wilhelm Reich was right about everything with an asterisk. And it said, everything except that one thing, you know that thing I'm talking about. And that's exactly, so it's what he's referring to is what that thing we're not talking about is when they opened up the barricades in Nevada to let the people run towards Trump. So they could go in his rally. And it was like a crowd, like an absolute crowd of people. And I think the underlying concept of today is that I think fascism doesn't go away. I think it hasn't ever. But I think it's interesting that you bring that up directly in the Reikian sense because it is the thing we don't talk about. And it is the thing that we are always experiencing. And it's somebody mentioned later, I think I don't know who the author was. Maybe it was um, – Mike Rothschild, who said, we have to remember that QAnon, and now I'm going to have to switch over to that, is a fascist movement. You know, it, it really is. And though that means it's a mimetic fascist movement because it's born of a media uh, ecological space. It isn't organically treated from a person-to-person communication and physical space. It is born of the internet or born of the digital. So those types of things are the, the functioning disorder of mimetic magic that leads us, or me magic that leads us into a mind space distinctly separate from the graphical image space. In a lot of ways, I wonder, I wonder if social me- media, as such, um, is reflecting necessarily, you know, the inherent biases maybe in a digital framework, um, or, or if this is, ch- I, I think, in a lot of ways. Um, you know, I think uh, Doug goes to some Doug Rushkoff goes to some extent to explain what these persuasive architectures re- really mean and their implications. It's like, okay, so we've we're we're ultimately borrowing, you know, casino algorithms, embedding them into these environments, and m- manipulating, you know, the base fight or flight or even you know freeze response of the human organism um in a lot of ways his question is what did you think was going to happen this is <laughs> this is not a uh, social space or a social environment this is a highly highly uh, traumatizing uh and and in and in a lot of weird ways self-reinforcing um feedback loop and i think we're, we're all experiencing that energy um, which doesn't stop, right? Even if it's bumping up against a lot of cultural armor, um, those those tend to exacerbate and spill out into into the kinds of behaviors um, and into the kinds of ideologies that that we see popular amongst, I guess, a more a more fascistic um, leaning. Uh, but but ultimately, I think that distortion is coming from a really trauma. And 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 being you know and really being messed with in a fundamental sense and it's how, how can we you know we we've all been you know cranky or hangry um, and and in moments we don't necessarily feel like ourselves and we might you know snap out at a loved one um, because you know in the popular Snickers commercial we didn't we didn't have our Snickers bar um, but <laughs> in a lot of ways yeah lo- love is that underlying energy um, and the distortion I guess to take a very Reikian approach is the opposite. Right, that 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 distortion turns into violence and and, and yeah. hate, um, and wanting to annihilate the other uh, rather than to to be in, in communion with the other. So right. So yeah. they were talking about how this 
Q phenomenon and the, the morph translation to save the children is really just another satanic panic. And it's a re- re- repeat of many histories of this. And there was an actually a really, really great article about it that we'll link it down in the, the notes that was about the long history of how many times this has happened throughout history. And we have to remember this is like just a concurrent thing because what it comes down to is it, isn't a, fe- it is a fear. Obviously, you're 100% right. But it isn't the fear of people aren't concerned about other people's children. They're concerned about their own children. So they place it on themselves as a fear of the, the, of the other based on the fear of their own, their, their personal selfish nature of it, which they exhibit through hatred then as an extant, man, this is already built up. We already had this. It's the tool has already been in place. As I always remember, one of my very good friends used to always say, fascism doesn't just like show up in jackboots and goose stamping. It has many, many, many tiny steps that get it to that point. And like what we don't, we don't, not to say this is like determinist in any way that we're going to be a fascist state, but what it is is to say that the signs and the beliefs and the structures of fascism are leaking into physical space all the time right now. Yeah, that's it. That's exactly right. I think, you know, and it's, it's prescient and timely, I think, with the, the kind of back to back releases of, um, of uh, Feels Good Man, the documentary. Uh, and and I think what's interesting, the documentary about Pepe, and of course, you know, what's interesting in, in my time uh, at Queens College, um, actually with, with Josh, um, taking a course called, you know, Memes, Magic, and Manipulation. And it was right at that time mm-hmm. um, that, that this kind of uh, 4chan Keck phenomenon was stirring up. Um, in a lot of ways, I think, you know, there was a certainly a, a concentrated effort to, to to put out some positive vibes, man, and uh, and and really, you know, help help bring some peace and maybe a, l- a little bit of light to a very dark situation. And it, it's interesting how you know I think that the kind of mimetic, um, the kind of uh, I guess evolution of the meme, you know, in Hong Kong. I like to think, you know, we all, you know, all of us in that con- concentrated effort put put some light in a very dark place um, and and help shepherd maybe and uh, and heal. Um, a deep trauma, uh, and and maybe you know, as a sign of liberation, or, or even as a sign of peace, shows how how these things break through, and in a lot of ways, become become the opposite. Yeah, I have to agree with you on that, and I, the reason I have to do that is because I think there's just enough space for for memes that lead down that dark rabbit hole to the doom and gloom, and I think we oftentimes don't utilize memes as positive, and. That the ending of Phil's Goodman, it's a coda, so it's not a, it doesn't spoil the film because it is the coda of the film. But it is a, based on the historical um, moment that at the same time Kek, Kekistan, hatred, and the weaponization of Pepe was happening, the exact same time it was splintering into an Eastern space. And the way the Eastern methodology had used Pepe was in a more peaceful or collective manner. Yeah. And we have to remember that memes aren't the same in every single environment. And I wrote about it in, in the, the Pepe paper I wrote years ago about how in China, they use memes to subterfuge the Great Firewall of China because the algorithm can't read the positive notes. In other words, wow. what this is what fascinating, and I still think about this to this day, the algorithm seeks out the negative weaponization or the negative connotation of memes. So when you create a meme that has a positive purpose, it actually subterfuges the system because it can't detect the meaning because memes in terms of like algorithmic studies or even uh, stereotypical studies, memes are supposed to be somewhat negative or somewhat like hurtful. And when you make them positive, you're like, oh shit, the energy of that 
can be reversed and away from it. I would hope so. It's you know, it's interesting in terms of what you're you're pointing to what's what's being ignored or what's being left out or what what's not being counted. Um, I mean, I mean, I think that it's right there. We're seeing you know the fundamental economic foundation that's driving, let's say, necessarily um, the outrage economy or even the negative news economy. You know, where where we can at least you know hope. I guess potentially tie longer engagement and and maybe even more purchasing uh, decisions and and being able to connect that negative engagement, maybe that feeling of despair and hopelessness and the perpetuation of that through through social uh, and, and and psychographic models. Um, unfortunately, is is not mm-hmm. necessarily a kind of I, I think fundamentally um, or even I guess to use a word like natural adaptation to social environment. It's definitely a reflection of uh, what you're describing there and being exacerbated, um, you know, ad infinitum and becoming much smarter every, every single time about where those, where those particular um, neuroses lie and how to tie those two to weird ideas. Uh, but that's just a, a, guess, a sign of the times. Yeah. I think so all the time, whenever we're doing the meme talks when we're having conversations just like that people often get to the this this exact point like you just mentioned and they're always like well if it is so to speak a sign of the times and it is so to speak a, a space in which we are unescapable from it but it is necessary because we interpret media through its current iteration and right now it happens to be meme magic or even just hmm. meme creation so I, you go along these ideas like what David Neuert also asked with this, which is like, what what is there to be done? And not to use like the Leninist aspect of it, not the revolutionary, but like, what's there to be done? And he always says, well, remember, underneath these memes and underneath these feelings is a is an actual emotion that's embedded within it. And so, two parts to this. One, I always talk about the fact that right wing memes, the emotion embedded in it is very shallow. It's anger. It's an extremely shallow, unnecessary, unmeaningful meme, which requires meme lords or edge lords of the far right to constantly be keeping the anger up. Because if you stop, the anger actually dissipates. It goes away. So it, it turns into uh, air. So the anger can only be maintained. And so my always my fear of the far right mm. memes is that the anger can be pushed just a little too far and it creates like a Kyle Rittenhouse type of thing where a call to action actually results in action. David Neuert Neuert, um, always has mentioned like, what do you do in the case of actually encountering somebody who has this? And he says, you have to remember that there's something underlying it, which is often grievance. And grievance is truly there because especially in COVID and the pandemic, people are feeling a grievance either to government, to each other, towards systems, towards social media, towards sports, who knows what it is. But that grievance is based on an actual fear that people aren't having an easy time expressing. So they go towards the reductionist media that happens to be mimetic or meme magic. And so I think you're right, which is like those emotions actually are the meme. Like we're actually looking at a a visual output of emotion, which I think is a little different and probably unexpected from McLuhan, although he would probably agree with it. But the medium at the time of McLuhan that we have today didn't exist yet. So we couldn't potentially imagine it. But memes today are that message just repackaged into a new form and style. That's right. Well, I mean, the way you're describing it, McLuhan was, you know, the medium of the day was television. And, you know, thinking about mm-hmm. thinking about memetics and memetic studies, you know, in a digital media environment, um, do, do, these, do these things necessarily still work that way? Or, uh, meaning, meaning meme ideologies and 
and ultimately even, I guess, the more occult aspects. Uh, you know, McLuhan talks about retrieval. And in a lot of ways, you know, when we talk about recapitulating, you know, former generational uh, um, attitudes and behaviors and seeing them in new forms and patterns, um, you know, we're really talking about a, a retrieval of sorts, right? I think, um, mm -hmm. and sorry, not to, not to entirely lose the thread there. I, I dived into the retrieval part. Um, <laughs> I think I'd, uh, in, in the television environment, um, social media is just recapitulating the, te the television environment. And yeah. actually, mm -hmm. we, we could even say that, you know, the web in a lot of ways is, you know, it, it's Netflix, it's YouTube, it's, it is still television. Yeah. So in a lot of ways, what, what we're doing, and McLuhan, I think, would have seen this, is that in a, in a lot of ways, uh, it, we're, we're still using or, you know, producing the effects of the old media environment in, in, in a completely and entirely yeah. new substrate. I guess the question is, what is the opportunity here? You know what can we do, and, and and I guess a very pointed question is, and and how can we help? One of the ways that we've been talking about for months, and we've been considering this because this is just obviously heavy on all our minds, is that there it doesn't have to be uh, divisive. It does that's like a choice. And so McLuhan in '64 when he said, "Remember the tribalism," it's like it will create a television creates tribalism. It it because channels themselves exist tribal tribalism exists and so uh, as we move towards a new more newsletter based society and a unique curatorial web we are we are being built to divisiveness but it's not required it's not a, a requirement of the system it's just is the system that is marketable and consumer esque but i think the the thing to be done is like the same it's t it's a little tougher in covid but it's to to understand and listen and to be reflexive i think and it's like reflexive not in the sense of we should never tolerate hate and, and racism but we should be reflexive to the idea that other people have understood in in terms of how we engage with media and consume media so does everyone else so if we understand that we all are consuming and engaging with media well, shit, well, at least we have that in common. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. We're, we're, we're all afraid. <laughs> we can, yes, we're all, we're all hiding behind our, you know, our, our news feeds. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so there's, there's a lot of stuff to be done. I, I enjoyed talking with you. I got to. Thanks, Jamie. This was awesome. Um, let's keep it up. I, you know, we found the record button. I really, really appreciate the invitation and, um, you know, let's keep it going. Thanks guys. Thank you for listening to the Digital Void Podcast. You can follow us on social media at digivoidmedia on your favorite platform and write to us at digivoidmedia at gmail.com. We're excited to bring you new original workshops, podcasts, and live events in 2021. A special thank you to our partners at Civic Hall, All Tech is Human, Futures Podcast, and MEO Jobs. We really appreciate the time you took to collaborate with us this year. Thank you all. Stay safe, stay healthy, enjoy your new year, and we'll see you in 2021.